the best answers come out of not actually saying, here, I've thought of this product. What do you think about it? Because people will go, that's great. They're not going to say, well, actually, it's not going to fit into my daily routine because I already do this and I do that. They're not going to think in that way. So you have to talk to people around about the product, you know, with with that in mind, but not talking about the solution, not talking about the design of it, just trying to figure out as much about them and what they need. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hey guys, 2024 is right around the corner, so now is the time to upgrade your software stack. There's never been a better time to check out Greenlight Guru's quality and clinical solutions that are purpose-built for the medtech industry. Greenlight Guru's solutions have been proven to deliver a 50% reduction in time spent on design and development documentation, a 50% reduction in time spent preparing for audits, and much more. Greenlight Guru has been named the number one medical quality management system by G2. So sign up for a demo today at greenlight.guru forward slash demo greenlight.guru slash demo. And for a limited time, we will give you a free quality manual. Let us know what you think. Greenlight.guru forward slash demo. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's episode. And with me today is Morvan Shearlaw. Um, super excited to have her with us. She's the co-founder of Fearsome. Maybe I'll just hand the mic to you to see how you're doing. And you want to give a little bit of your origin story and maybe some some of what you're doing over there at Fearsome? Yeah, absolutely. So nice to meet you, Etienne, and uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so Fearsome, we are a design and development agency specializing in medical devices. Um, so we help our customers bring their innovations um, to the market. So we help them design, develop, and um, build, test, um, and ultimately, hopefully, launch into the marketplace. Uh, we're based in Glasgow in Scotland. I would say sunny Scotland, but you know, that's only every so often. <laughs> um, and as you mentioned, I'm co-founder of the business. So there's two of us started the business um, around about 20 years ago. Um, we have a team of around about 20. We're actually growing all the time. Somebody started yesterday. You know, it's really, it is definitely a busy time for us. Um, and actually, this is the main thing I've ever done. Um, I came out of university, did a few sort of small um, sort of freelance jobs. Um, I did design engineering at university. I've always loved um, making and building things, understanding how things work. Um, and also the creative side, so I really love drawing. Um, you know, I love design. I love looking at nice things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I came out of university. It was, a, it was around about 2000, so it's quite a long time ago. And there wasn't a huge amount of job design opportunities up in Scotland, um, very sort of London, southeast uh, focused. Um, it's different now. It's a completely different landscape now. But myself and Alan, the other co-founder, decided that we would just sort of strike out and see if we could just make a go, go of it. Um, that was when, you know, your living costs weren't so expensive, you're happy to eat noodles, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we started as a broader design firm. So we did... Basically, we did any kind of job that people asked us to do because, you know, we were trying to make money and, you know, build a business. And we've just kind of grown organically um, since then. The last 
10 years, we've started to focus towards medical devices. Um, and I would, you know, that's primarily what we do now. Um, but the experience of all the other industries has been really useful in development of the company, you know, building expertise and sort of understanding of different types of manufacturing and regulations. So we've got kind of quite a broad background, but we're now really focused on medical devices. Um, but I think the sort of the, the broadness has really helped us um, in sort of thinking slightly laterally sometimes, you know, not being too um, niche and focused on things. So yeah, that's a little bit of the origin story. I don't know if that was too much detail or not enough detail, but that's well, kind it's of- enough to make me curious about a few things. And I know okay, we please. want to get to the topic of usability and you know, to focusing on a human-centered medical device design. So I'll just go ahead and throw that out there, my preview to the to the overall topic. But I do want to ask a little bit of a question because you do have that actually is really valuable having worked in those other industries, or at least I can potentially see it having be, being really valuable. I'm curious. Yeah, in 20 years, you've probably seen so many, so many different changes. It was 1996, I think, the design controls came out. Um, so it's, it's still probably relatively new when you when you came out. Uh, the yeah. the differences in those other industries and medical devices. What are some of the stark things that that stand out in your mind? Um, so in the other industries, we we did actually we did a lot of work in other heavily regulated industries. Um, so you know, there's there's quite a lot of parallels between. Um, there's a Thing called ATEX, which is basically when things are designed in to be used in explosive environments. So oh, things okay. are used on oil rigs or in submarines. So obviously, you know, safety is a huge factor. Um, and I think the the starkest difference is the I think the rigor that you have to go through when you're looking at, you know, a product that's going to be used in a consumer setting. You know, and what you need to prove the safety factors. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the starkest difference between like the other industries and medical devices. But like I said, we were working in industries where you know something goes on fire, you've got a serious problem, so we have to, you know, you have to so prove still it. regulated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay. And yeah, and I think maybe access to like end users as well sometimes is easier in other industries. You know, that if you want to talk with like nurses, clinicians, they're busy people or, you know, there's confidentiality issues. So sometimes in other industries, it's easier just to go out and find someone that would use that type of product. But if you're talking about a niche medical product, then your, you know, your pool of users is smaller. You're going to have a tougher time kind of finding the, those experts to to get that input. Well, let's use that as a segue then, because if we mm-hmm. want to talk about a human-centered medical device, um, something that is designed with the user in mind, wh- who do we define as that user? You mentioned clini- clinicians and nurses. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of, you know, if I have a, a device that's going to be used in the home, you know, just the user. But but what is the scope of my end user when you think about when you think about that? Yeah. So. A thing that we would always try and um, introduce as early into a product, a project or a product development is figuring out who the end users are, but also making sure we're talking to as many stakeholders within that product's ecosystem. So like a product, I like to think about human factors, um, it's, it's a product, it's product, people and the place it's used in. So you have to consider the environment it's used in, the systems, the organizational systems, um, and the people that are involved in that product. So those could be 
the end user. So it could be a clinician, you know, if it's a surgical device. But there's also people that are going to be cleaning that, you know, the system of like, how is this reused? How is it um, clean, made clean and suitable to be used the next time without any infection risk? You've then got another layer of like, well, who's actually buying the device? Who's making the decision about buying, you know, that sort of commercial mm. side? Um, and then obviously the patient often is a, a user as well. So as, you know, healthcare is changing and more of it's trying to get sort of being pushed towards the home, you know, people being looked after in the home environment, then those, you know, the patients become the primary user of these devices. Um, so we would always do a kind of an exercise at the beginning. It just goes even before the product exists or the concept exists, say, right, here are all the people involved in it. We need to speak to as many of these people as possible just to, to understand what the issues are going to be, you know, what the requirements are going to be. Is there going to be some budgetary thing that basically means the product can only ever cost this much? Mm. You know, is, if it's going to be too expensive, it will just be dead in the water. So that's, we, like, we try to think as broadly about human factors as possible, not just, you know, what color is the button going to be on the device. It's really about who all is involved in this product's life cycle from it being used and, you know, being purchased right up to it being potentially decommissioned or, you know, refurbished. Um, so, yeah, that's like, it's always a challenge sort of identifying all the main stakeholders because often you have to speak to people to then understand, all right, that person's also involved in this process, you know, and, and then we need to find some of them. Um, but that's like, to be honest with you, like that's the stuff I really enjoy, that sort of little puzzle, you know, figuring out where really important areas where you're going to find the nuggets that are really going to help you develop the products um, and ultimately hopefully develop a commercially successful product. I love that. So, okay. I, there's a couple things I want to do. I, I actually want to do two different things. The one, maybe first what we should do to, to, to serve the listeners best, if we zoom mm -hmm. out and think of it from uh, end to end, uh, maybe if we could do a very skim flyover, um, and you kind of mentioned a little bit about you know determining who the users are, but what is the overall process um, from a uh, human-centered aspect of the design and development of a medical device? What are the different phases or stages we need to do? That's one thought I want to have, and I don't want to throw too much at you, but that's one thing I want to cover quickly, um, or, or however much depth you want to go. The other thought, and and you can you can punt on this if you want. You can say no, I don't know if I want to go there. If I came up with a, an idea for a medical device like right now, could you walk me through the different stages and would just say, hey, let's just pretend we're going to do this and give a give a fun example? What, which one would you want to do? You, you, any thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're broadly sort of two sides of the same coin in that, that um, you know, medical device development and you start with your user needs, which gives you your design inputs, which then gives you your design outputs, which is your design, which you then test against your user needs. And then, you you know, you verify that you've got something that is suitable and safe and can be launched into the market. So that front end bit, all about the user needs, that's really the, the starting point. So you've got to start with who's going to be using it, why are they going to be using it, who are they going to be using it on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but then you've also got like marketing input. So if we are working with a customer, they will probably have some idea of the marketplace that they're working in. And they will probably have some kind of indication of we are looking to enter this particular bit of the market, i.e. we want to make a device 
that is um, competitive with this other range of devices, you know, or maybe they've got a high-end product and they want to bring in a sort of a more accessible financially you right. know, product. So those will be kind of, those are part of your design inputs um, and your user needs. So your users, from our point of view, we are also, our customers are stakeholders in a product. You know, it's not just That's true. their customers. Yeah. <laughs> like their, their requirements of what the design, you know, what the product needs to do for them as a business are huge drivers to what the device will be. Um, so if you were to come to us um, and, I'm, you know, delighted to do any design project with you, too, <laughs> that would be great, um, come to us with a, a, an idea for a medical product, we would probably want to take a step back and go, well, why this thing? You know, where's the innovation lying? Why are you trying to do it this way? And instead of just running with that concept, going backwards and like uh-huh. going into quite deeply into the users, you know, deeply into who's going to be using it, what else is on the marketplace, um, how else can you solve this problem? Why would there be, you know, why would there be a market for this particular concept? Because a, a product doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, all the things need to be right. That, you know, there needs to be a market for it. And that market needs to be large enough to sustain it. Um, you need to make sure, like, the intellectual property as well. You know, that's a huge factor. Like, is are there other things out there that are doing a similar thing? Is there a bigger player that's already operating in that field that actually might just cost you anyway? Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but none of these are necessarily questions you can answer, but you have to make sure that you're probing all these things before going on a certain path. Because... Medical device development, any product development, it's expensive. It, you mm-hmm. know, it takes a long time. The regulatory aspects mean that, you know, it takes a certain amount of time. You're paying people to develop things for you, whether you're doing it in-house or, in, you know, using a subcontractor or a partnership. It's a, there's a lot of time and effort goes into developing things that are safe and, you know, manufacturable, um, even just investment in manufacturing you know, the further you go, the more money you spend and then the more committed you are as well. So better yeah. to like <laughs> test out the concepts before they're really even a concept because you can do a lot of things like that where you go out and uh, we've done things when we've gone to clinicians with like bits of cardboard to represent a screen and it's like, well, could it sit here or could it sit over here? And, you know, 10-minute conversation and you've already advanced the thinking hugely um, or even just, you know, we, we like to sort of map out ideal ways of a product being used, sort of like call it a workflow, um, before you've even designed anything and sort of probe into that with clinicians or you, end users. You know, is this really going to work? Do we need to make more considerations? So doing as much sort of agilely and all these, you know, buzzwords and everything um, up front before you're really committed is hugely like that's that definitely the best starting point. I love that um, you brought that up because you you basically hit the nail on the head as far as the mistake I would have come to you with. Because I'm just going to give you my example. I'll say, okay, well, I have a device in mind. I have, let's say, so my wife, just full disclosure, she's a registered nurse and she experiences issues. So she's a critical care nurse as well. Mm-hmm. And she experiences issues, you know, things she doesn't like 
And she has ideas sometimes like, Etienne, you're a mechanical engineer. Why don't you fix this problem this way? And she has an idea. And uh, so one of the things she would love to see is a connected IV pole that instead of beeping in the room, it beeps at the nurse's uh, uh, phone because they always carry around their phones. And but but they don't really get a, a they don't really get a message that the IV pole is beeping. It's just the person in the, the the bed who's annoyed. And so I might say, okay, well I'll just make a connected IV pole. And so I want to come to you and do that. But you already told me. You said, well, what we need to do is explore the problem. If I if I put it in my own yeah. words, we really need to understand the actual problem. What's the problem? They're not able to determine that this person needs another dose, or maybe the IV bag is is emptied out, or whatever the case may be. So that's the real problem. Um, not not that they need to be connected. We're jumping to a solution. Is that is that accurate? Exactly, exactly. And to be honest with you, sometimes the original solution, the original thought about what the solution is, may be the end solution. But you need to go through the process and kind of trust the process a little bit to really probe into. Okay, so this is this is what's happening right now, and the problem. You know, these are the effects of why you know this like wasted time or people not getting medication when they need it or like you see someone in their bed just really annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you're already in hospital, you're already not feeling that amazing. Um, and then, yeah, really just going out and studying, like, you know, going and looking at the problem and not being sort of stuck away in a, a sort of behind a computer designing something um, without really understanding what the nurses are going through, what the patients, you know, is, is there an impact on the patients? Um, is there other things you, it could tie in with? You know, are there already other ways of working or other systems that, you know, solve some of these issues or, you know, you could pair up with? Are there any, you know, unintended things that might happen by removing the the physical distance between the nurse and the patient? You know, are the nurses going, I, I really don't think this for a second, but, you know, just to sort of hypothesise that if they're, contacted remotely then the visits to the actual patients might drop you know like the face-to-face contact and maybe that's I really don't think that's a case that's going to happen right just you know like figuring out what are what are the risks um because that again it's part of human factors and medical devices it's all risk Beasts, you know, really, that's a really good point. And and that's something that I personally forget sometimes. So my background was manufacturing and product development. And I worked with the human factors team and I didn't always see them as risk uh risk management. But that but you're right. Mm-hmm. That that really is what like 62366 is based on, is all about risk management. I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a point where actually our background in having a slightly broader, you know, industry, yeah portfolio background really helps because because the regulatory aspect about human factors and medical device it is so heavily tied into sorry somebody's phoning me <laughs> no that's okay <laughs> we're all human beings here <laughs> um so yeah because it's so heavily tied into risk management and identifying risk and basically trying to design out where possible that risk to you know harming a patient harming a, a clinician. Um, it can get sort of siloed a little bit. You know, you get the team of engineers and you get the team of human factors people um, and the engineers design something and then human factors people test it and then they might have a few design inputs to change. But sometimes it goes so far down the process before that human factors thing is really done and essentially the product's already designed. Yeah. 
So the way that we, you know, the, when we worked in other industries, human factors was always, sometimes it was a bit of a nice distance. <laughs> you had really right. had to persuade people that you needed to go out and speak to users and um, to be, and that's where we came, we came to the realization that it's really commercially important to engage with users earlier on because if nobody wants to buy the product once you've designed it, then you've got a bit of a problem. Um, so we've always kind of viewed human factors as something that's really integral to developing a commercially successful product and also something that is nice to use, you know, like enjoyable to use. That's really, really important as well. Whereas sometimes in medical devices, it really is just so focused on the safety aspect as it should be. But we're always trying to layer in that, you know, making sure there is still that kind of design element that's about this is a nice product to use. Therefore, it's more safe because it's nicer to use. Um, also, making sure that you're designing with the, the person that's going to be purchasing it in mind. You know, like really that commercial element. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the, but the risk management is so important and like, because it's so heavily tied into identifying where could they be critical? Where could something go wrong that is really mm -hmm. going to cause harm to someone? Um, and, you know, that's what the summative testing is all about. And therefore then, you know, is what allows you to prove to the FDA and MHRA and, and UK that it is a safe product. Because, I mean, with all the sort of the horror stories of things that have happened in the past, it's really such an important element. But it's really useful to remember that actually human factors is a broader thing. You know, it's about where people meet products and like things should be nice to use and enjoyable to use. And that's where human factors can actually come in and sort of help in that design process. It could be a competitive differentiator too, I would think. Yeah. Just, um, something may do the job, but something else is more enjoyable to use. You, yeah. That's a clear winner. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Everyone uses things in their life and everyone's got the one thing that they hate picking up because it's a pain that they've got to use it anyway. Um, I was actually, I was thinking about this just earlier on. There's, we've been working in the ophthalmic area for a little while um, with a, a number of customers. And some of that equipment that's used by opticians, you go out and you speak to opticians and they all say, like verbatim, you know, they'll all say, you've always got a big, you've got a problem with, um, there's a thing called the slit lamp where there's like a sort of frame that you put your chin and mm -hmm. you put your forehead against, and then the optician will come up and look into the back of your eye. And a lot of these are constructed in a way that they've got poles that just go straight down onto a table. And opticians are like, if a, if a female comes in with a large chest, it's very right. difficult. You have to basically shuffle up against it. Larger patients and, you know, global trends of people getting larger, um, sometimes it's impossible to get them actually into a position where you can look at their eyes. So they end up using older techniques and um, sort of more basic equipment, which means that population, a certain number of the population are getting less, you know, they're getting less care than other people, um, which is not right. So, but it's just kind of accepted that the equipment is <laughs> just right. a bit rubbish. You know, it's like, oh, well, and the equipment manufacturers, it's, it's almost like the elephant in the room that everyone kind of knows that it's not great. Um, but and some companies are starting to try and work around about it and, and solve those, you know, provide solutions that are kind of more um, inclusive, basically. Um, but certainly, yeah, it's like 
there are certain industries where you, if you just made that difference, you'd suddenly, it would be a game changer. You know, people would be suddenly like, all right, yeah, that problem that we all just work around has suddenly gone away. That's a you really know? good, I, I love that you bring that up because the the diversity is is something that we don't always think about, women's health and so forth, when it may not yeah. be something that's specific for what, like that. I would not have thought of that. Um, I've actually been in in the optometrist where we talk about the the old equipment. He says, yeah, I think this has been the same equipment for the last 30 years. And sometimes, you know, maybe things don't need to, to change. They are, they're good and they're, they're, they meet the need. But sometimes, yeah. you know, maybe we haven't seen certain populations. So that's a really good point. Um, any, uh, what I, I'd be curious to know if you, well, let me back up. Most companies probably want to build a device that is somewhat human-centered. Maybe that's not the focus, but they probably have that somewhere in their in their goals, even if it's just a nice to have. What are even some of those companies who are focused on it? What do you consistently see them fall down on or or really forget about any pitfalls? Yeah, I think it's kind of what we touched on before. It's like and you know we are the same in the team. You you want to get to the solutions. You want to get to the yeah. right. Okay, here's let's let's go to engineer. You know, it's an engineering <laughs> thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like that's what is exciting about doing design. It's like doing stuff, testing it out, um, and companies that even that are focused on that sort of human factors or you know user centered development. They there is a tendency to want to go as fast as possible which is completely understandable. You know, it's commercial organizations, um, projects have got budgets and projects have got timelines and, they're, they're, you know, there's a desire to try and keep to those. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of jumping to solutions and then probably not testing enough with people early on. Um, like the example I was talking about, you know, just, you know, screen placement, a bit of cardboard kind of simulates that. Um you don't yeah. need to develop something that's a fully working functional prototype. Um, there's a nervousness as well to go out to users. Like everybody knows, you, you, mm. you know, you need feedback, but you don't necessarily want to go and get that feedback because you might be wrong. Right. Um, so that there's like, I think that's human nature. Um, so Did that's, I think. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. I'm, I'd be curious if you have any stories about going out and getting that feedback. Yeah, so I mean, actually, there's one that comes to mind, and it was a sort of was probably one of our first big medical device projects where, um, yeah, we were like absolutely excited to have got the project to do. Um, it was reinventing uh, a, a piece of uh, imaging equipment, basically. Yeah, I can't say too much. Um, I'll try no, and tell the story. No, I without understand. Yeah. Into many details. <laughs> But basically, the, the the customer had come with a brief. Um, they were getting a certain amount of feedback from the field that they weren't selling because their product was too expensive. Mm. Um, so they wanted to make a kind of uh, an entry-level product that meant that they could hit more markets um, and hopefully sell more units. Um, so that that was fine, and l- luckily they were um, they were happy for us to go out and do some sort of market investigation and talk with clinicians in the UK and the US as well, because um, obviously those markets are like a bit different um, in terms of how healthcare is set up, um, and the US being a bigger market anyway. So we we went out and spoke to. I actually was involved in this. There was sort of four of us or three of us went out and spent two or three days in a hospital talking to 
uh, clinicians and nurses that were all involved in this procedure um, in this sort of area of health. And we filmed people talking. Um, and this was a big mistake I made. I filmed someone without actually asking them. So they, they were oh. kind of, they were, they were fine afterwards, but they were a bit surprised. So I would say, yeah, you know, always learning on the job. Um, and yeah, this is a while ago as well. So, you know, it's all on sort of camera phones and everything. And basically the clinicians absolutely ripped into the product. They just said, Oh, it's terrible and it doesn't work with all my other devices. And it's, big and clunky and you know we love the technology the technology is great but the thing is a pain to use and mm. um it just it, you know they were showing it where the patient would be and it's like well it doesn't fit where the patient is and if the patient's bigger then it's just too big so they gave us all this like really great feedback where it's like okay that is starting to give some pretty clear design directions you know like these are things that's really these are the reasons that people aren't buying it it's actually not the technology and it's maybe not the price. Mm. You know, if they were persuaded of the value, then the price would maybe start to be less of an issue. Um, so, yeah, we're rating fantastic, you know, edited it together, sort of sort of sound bites on pretty damning stuff um, <laughs> and then shared it with the, the company um, and the, the, the CEO basically sort of jaw hit the table because he was like why why don't we know this you know this is crazy that we don't know this about our you know our users and our market um and i like and basically a lot of people in the company did know it the sales the sales force and the clinical training force were always getting this feedback but they never wanted to really communicate it in that way because for whatever reason, they were nervous about seeing bad things about the product back into, you know, the sort of management. So it was a bit awkward for us because actually, you know, there was <laughs> some slightly awkward conversations. But I mean, it was ultimately really, really valuable, valuable for the project because it meant that there was some clear direction and it sort of changed what the brief was, which was we need to solve these problems. Um, and it, maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be a cheap cheap product it could be a more expensive product but as long as it works well for these clinicians and fits into how they want to work because that's really important you know a lot of people that are doing these jobs are really skilled they've been doing them for a long time you know they've got very set ways of working and they're not about to relearn something just because it might give them a little bit of you know it might be slightly better technology but ultimately they could do it a different way they could do it the way they've done it for a certain number of years so that's like one of the it was an eye opener for us as well. Like the the distance between a company and their users, like just having that third party involved, sometimes you get better, more in depth information. You know, yeah. because people want you want to please people. You want to tell them what they want to hear. You know, if someone's asking you a question, who's from that company? Um, and it is yeah, it's one of the things about user testing. We have to really frame it. You have to be very careful about how you test with people. Because ultimately, people will want to tell you what they think you want you to hear, you know, right? Um, be that good or bad, you know. That's interesting, and this is a little bit off. Uh, maybe it's not completely relevant, but it made me think of uh, just in in talking with people in general. You mentioned that third party being a good go between, or or 
or the one who's yeah. not, they're able to give the unsanitized information and you don't want to be that bear of bad news. But um, on the flip side, you know, just in dealing with people in general, I've, I've learned that secondhand compliments are sometimes the best that you want to receive. And what I mean by a secondhand compliment is you, I could tell you, Hey, you look nice today. But if I hear someone else say, Hey, that report they did was amazing. And I say, Hey, I heard the CEO said, likes your report. That means a lot more than you come from me because I get nothing out of telling you that. So those sometimes those secondhand, um, but, but in business, yeah. you know, we're all humans. So yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's really important to remember that that you know people have egos, you know, yeah. they, <laughs> they, um, and you know they want you they want to please as well. But yeah, absolutely. I think that just having that sort of like slight barrier between. Um, two parties that are quite interlinked does help, you know, get richer information out. Um, and then the, tr the trick or the, the skill is to sort of using that information and then sort of turning yeah. it into design, you know, actually accepting computers. it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You asked, so you gave a lot of questions earlier on and I wish there was a way for me to just kind of bullet point every one of those out because I asked, okay, let's say we have a, a theoretical design and you said, well, Let's go back and I would ask you this question and this question, you know, what, what's the actual problem you're trying to solve? What are the, um, who, who's going to in, interact with the device and all these different things. Um, maybe this, this is probably a question more for your, uh, for Charlotte, who's on the call just a minute ago, the, our marketing person, but that would be a fantastic, maybe checklist. I don't know if there could even be a comprehensive checklist, but if I wanted a human centered device, I wonder if that'd be something we could build just where you ask all these questions. These are things you have to do, at least a baseline. There may be me additional and, and on top of that, but a, a checklist of questions to ask. Maybe I'll, we could, if that's something we could put together and download and put in the show notes, I think that would be fantastic, but I don't want to put you on the spot on recording. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that, um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not, it's, yeah, it's such a broad thing because it is about, you know, looking at the, the market as well and, you know, Figuring yeah. out who your stakeholders are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that would be a really kind of useful resource um, because it's the kind of things that we would mentally start blogging at the start of a project anyway. You'd go, right, these are the things yeah. we need to find out. Um, these are the conversations we need to have. Um, so yeah, absolutely. But yeah, as long as you don't, you're not asking me to detail no. your questionnaire right now. Then no, 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 no. Yeah, maybe we could put that together. Those of you who are listening, I'll keep you posted on whether or not that this is able to come to fruition. I don't mean to put you on the spot right now. So um, that's really cool. I'm curious if you other have resources or books, you know. Oh, and I'll give you an example. So I didn't know a lot about HF, but a friend of mine who is in Human Factors recommended the design of everyday things. I think it was at Don Norman, um, someone yeah. who originally worked at. Apple. It's been a long time since I read the book. Um, but anyway, uh, he talked about all the different affordances, signifiers, and it made me really appreciate human factors from a uh, human-centered design approach. Any recommendations as far as that goes as books or resources? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. The the Don Norman one is a kind of classic like yeah. starter point. Um I think um like weirdly, often it's the books that I find the most useful, um, and I think I'll have to give it to you in the show notes because I yeah, can't that's remember fine. its name in a moment, um, was a, a woman who, she's a journalist, and she lived for a year in, I'm not going to say the country because I'm going to get it wrong, but she really immersed herself in the way that people were living there and just like lived as it, it was it wasn't Tibet but it was you know something like that she was like living with 
uh, a nomadic tribe and oh, you know, wow. really, really understood how they dealt with things. And then that helped her come back and talk about, you know, informing policy and things. And it's books like that where that is basically like, it's a sort of super, it's human factors plus, if you know what I mean, like really like being a method actor and just basically becoming as close to the people you're working with as possible. Um, so, uh, yeah, I do have a couple of books that I would <laughs> recommend, but I'm sorry, they're going to have to be the show notes. Yeah. Certainly, I the ones I find the most useful when you're thinking about engaging with people and talking to people are, they tend to be the more kind of psychology-based information rather than like the the sort of the nuts and bolts of human factors. Um, like, how do you have natural conversations with people? Um, there's a really good book called The, the Mom Test, which is actually... I'm sorry, I'm not American, so I'm just like I'm saying mom. Like, <laughs> no, 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 this is great. Um, yeah, that's that's a fantastic one because it's actually it's about building new products. It's about building digital products. Actually, it's not hum- it's not medical devices at all, but it's about how to ask questions that even your mum couldn't give you the answer that she, you know, because your mum's always going to be nice to you, and she's always going to give you the answer she thinks you want. So how do you how do you have conversations with people that will help you build better products, um, and really get the answers to the questions that you're asking without like the best answers come out of not actually saying here I've thought of this product what do you think about it because people will go that's great you know they're not going to say well actually it's not going to fit into my daily routine because I already do this and I do that they're not going to think in that way so you have to talk to people around about the product you know, with, with that in mind, but not talking about the solution, not talking about the design of it, just really trying to figure out as much about them um, and what they need. So, yeah, yeah that, like that's a, like, I think that's a great one. It's really accessible. It's really easy to read. And it sort of opens your mind to like, okay, yeah, I did ask that in a really stupid way. Of course, that person's going to say that it's a great idea, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, I, I can build up a couple of more suggestions at the moment, but oh no, that's um, fantastic. Don Norman's, Don Norman's yep. definitely a classic. Um, that okay. sort of intersection of psychology and design is really, really interesting. Okay, and you, that book you mentioned—I know I'm getting a little off topic here, but there's a book yep. about Robert Moses called the the Power Broker. The author of that book wrote one. I can't remember which president he talked about, but he lived in New York and he wanted to learn about this president, so he actually went and lived in Texas. Um, for several years so he could understand the president better as he was writing his biography. But it just made me think of that, just the the book you were mentioning. The book, mm-hmm. uh, The Mom Test, How to Talk to Customers and Learn If Your Business is a Good Idea When Everyone is Lying to You. I love that title. And and that's I, I'm going to put that on my Amazon cart right now, actually. So I'll put that in the show notes so people can find it. Very cool. Yeah, I think I think potentially you've got the same issue as I have, which is like someone mentions and you're like, okay, I'll buy it. And then you've got a huge pile that you're sort of trying to get yourself through. But One person yeah. gave me a great idea. He said, what you need to do is you put it on audio, like uh, get the audio book and listen to it at one and a half or two times speed. Mm-hmm. And if you think you're really getting into something, uh, it, it, if you go through it two times, buy the actual book and then you can mark it up. And, and that way I filter it that way. So I listen to a lot of books and then I read a smaller amount of books. A smaller amount. Yeah, that's probably a sensible thing. Yeah, yeah I find um, there's a couple of podcasts that I have to listen at a faster pace just because the people speak so slowly. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a tough uh, yeah. balance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Um, Very cool. I, so one other thing I wanted to ask about just with this uh, is what about the standard itself? When you get into usability, um, mm-hmm. we talk about just focusing on the user and focusing on the uh, the the problem. And I'll just throw out a, a statement someone told me early on in my career that really helped um, in a, a lot of different areas, not just with design of a, a product, but even your processes and things like that when you're trying to be a little bit more efficient. And they said, the heart of the problem is the seed of the solution. So really understand what the problem is you're trying to accomplish. I mean, it's what you've been talking about this whole time. Mm-hmm. But what are um, uh, what about the standards and including all of those things? What are some things that maybe maybe they're getting it from a human-centered perspective, but what are those companies that are focusing on that, but maybe they're still not getting uh, that the standards are going to require? Any, anything come to mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Yeah, that's it's a huge sort of education piece that you know a company needs to do internally, or you know, with the help of a, a sort of regulatory input, is identifying all the standards that you're going to need to comply with, um, and that can be difficult as well if it's an innovation where there isn't necessarily thing, you know, there isn't necessarily design standards that actually tie in closely. Um, in terms of like the risk management and the human factors. A, a definite issue is people starting it too late. Like mm. I sort of mentioned before, you know, bringing yeah. in, and in fact, I was talking to um, a consultant ergonomist the other day, and he said a lot of his work is formative or summative studies where he's brought in and he's like, this is not, oh. you know, this is formative. You're actually still developing it and you're not close to summative or it's so designed and the issues you have are just now inherent in the product. And then it becomes, well, you you make the instructions better. And, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, the burden then becomes on instructions. And obviously, instructions are not a solution. Instructions are, you know, a necessary part of a medical device. You know, you need IFUs. You need IFUs that are um, proven to be understandable. Um, but it is a bit of a sticking plaster on design issues. Um, yeah. And... Obviously, like who reads IFUs? As well? <laughs> it's a last-ditch <laughs> effort, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I think that that probably that sort of starting it too late, um, or assuming that it is something that is going to be a simple bolt-on on the end is definitely, you know. So maybe, but in saying that, I think anyone that is engaged in sort of has been has bought into the human factors requirement or like the, the fact that they need to focus on their users are at least in the right mindset to be aware or uh, you know informed that there's a there's a regulatory process that needs to be developed. There needs to be a design history file. You know, you need to have the evidence. Um, yeah, and not just building that evidence to build the file. You know, using that 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 process. They should it should be happening naturally, and the regulatory side is just to kind of keep it logged, if you know what I mean, um, rather than sort of doing it as a tick box, tick box exercise. But it's certainly, I mean, it's a thing that ergonomists and human factors and specialists moan about. It's kind of their industry bugbear about medical device companies sort of coming and going, hey, can you do our summative testing? And then, you know, it's they're really just doing it because it's a regulatory requirement which is the wrong way of thinking, you know, like quality, quality management is about quality. <laughs> you know, it's about, it's not just about proving that it's 
you can sell in the market because you've got a certain certification. You know, it's it should be driving the the quality of the product and you know helping you develop something that is the best it possibly can be, rather than just something you need to do. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, I've I've talked to people about this before, as far as you know your design history file and the design controls. It's really just a formalized process of what good engineering already does. I mean, you yeah. already should be thinking about the user needs that you've been in other industries that maybe that wasn't formalized. Maybe it was, I don't know exactly, but uh, I've worked outside the regulated environment where you still want to know what your customer is looking for. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to sell it and and you need to know what their needs are so that you can go into those design inputs, design outputs and so forth. But that's, this is just a formalized way. It's it's the best practices. And so it should be used. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, yeah they, they shouldn't be existing sort of separately. You know, it really is um, a sort of symbiotic relationship. And yeah, the design controls are there to help you build the evidence um, yeah. ultimately rather than something that is should be driving the development. You know, that, that development should be happening like that anyway. So I'm going to put several things in the show notes. I'll put um, some links to how we can find you. Um, links to the books you recommended. Maybe we can get that other one as well. I'll try to find it and maybe yeah. you can send it to me. If we could do the downloadable, we'll see. We'll find out. Um, you know, that's, I don't, I, I hate to, I, they're going to get on to me. You, should, you don't put people on the spot when you're recording them. But anyway, um, appreciate your good sport. Anything we're missing? Any other thoughts that you have, piece of advice you have for companies? Yeah, as well. Just go out and talk to people. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> go out and seek feedback um, because, Ultimately, yeah, it makes better design uh, happen. It makes better products happen. Um, you know, we are all human beings, so we should be thinking about us from, from in everything we do. So, yeah, sorry, that's a little bit kind of high and mighty as an ending point. But Well, it's true. And I love how you started off. You start off that way. I think it's fair to end that way. Just remember this, the whole supply chain of people who are going to interact with the device talk to all of those people it's difficult and it could be intimidating but yeah yeah absolutely and i mean i you love know. finding about out about things that you don't know about so i you know naturally i think it's a, it's a great thing to do i think that's a good piece of advice is just to be curious but i i do i remembered a question i wanted to ask you and that was you had mentioned how it can be intimidating to go out there and talk to those people and you also mentioned uh, even the person who's reprocessing the device. But how do you recommend getting a hold of some of those people and any tips on on that aspect? Yeah. Um, so we have done all sorts of different things where you just you talk to as many people in your sort of social network and, you know, just people in, in the company say, do you know anyone that is a X? Mm-hmm. Um, we also do use recruitment companies, uh, which I think is important for later stages where you're bring, you're bringing in truly impartial and, um, you know, if, you're, if you've got a really kind of niche area you're looking at and actually that pool of people is quite small in the world. Um, for example, we're doing a, a project with a neurosurgery, so we need to speak to a certain type of neurosurgeon. So, you know, obviously that's like, those are busy people. Those are very, um, you know, time pressed people. So actually it, you need a third party to go out and find them for you and engage with them in a way that they are going to respond to. Um, I am a great lover of LinkedIn and just 
sending people messages and going, hi, I've noticed you're a, would you mind having a, I really, I need an expert and I want to talk to someone for 20 minutes. Would you mind having a chat? I usually, I usually word it a little bit better than that. Um, and that's, yeah, it can be scattergun and you might only get a few people, but definitely you have to be a little bit inventive. But then you do you do want to make sure that you're not bringing in too much kind of personal bias where somebody's like, it's a friend of a friend, so they don't want to upset you and they want to give you an honest honest feedback. Right. Um, and it, yeah, it depends if, if you're looking for a certain type of patient as well. Good things are like patient support groups, you know, if you want to speak to families of, uh, you know, looking after family members who've got dementia or something, you know, not necessarily talking to the patient themselves, but talking to the family members, mm. going out and just reaching out to like charitable groups and organizations or, you know, people that meet for a coffee every Tuesday, to, you know, to get some sort of community support. Basically just be inventive, you know. Fantastic advice. Um, yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, just be, yeah, be inventive and don't be afraid to sort of ask the question because usually people want to help. Right. Yeah, that's good advice. I love that. Well, Morvin, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Those of you who've been listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Check the show notes. We're going to try to have some good stuff in there for you. And until next time, we will see you all later. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask a special favor from you? Can you leave us a review on iTunes? I know most of us have never done that before, but if you're listening on the phone, look at the iTunes app, scroll down to the bottom where it says leave a review. It's actually really easy. Same thing with computer. Just look for that leave a review button. This helps others find us and it lets us know how we're doing. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you on LinkedIn. Reach out to me. I, I read and respond to every message because hearing your feedback is the only way I'm going to get better. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.